Welcome back to Inside the Boardroom, a podcast from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. I'm Jamie Plusser, the Assistant Dean for Marketing and Communications. Our goal with the series is to bring you thoughts, ideas, inspiration, and points of view from business leaders and academic leaders from Minnesota and beyond. This episode features a discussion with Jude Bricker, CEO of Sun Country Airlines. During the Carlson School's virtual First Tuesday event, Bricker talks about some of the challenges that his company and the airline industry have faced during the pandemic. Let's listen in. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of start off with the history of the Sun Country, uh, my involvement with Sun Country. Sun Country has been around for um, about 35 years now and has had a, you know, uh, a long history of serving this market, but also some financial challenges over its life. And um, I've always known them as a really good operating entity, um, but the business model for the rest of us in the industry looking at it from the outside was always kind of a head scratcher as to why it even existed. And I um, retired from Allegiant after a long tenure there. We, we actually took that company public, so Things were pretty good in the Bricker household and um, Sun Country at the time was controlled by two guys, the Davis brothers, Mitch and Marty, and they wanted out uh, to focus on their other businesses. And so, you know, we started talking immediately when I retired and um, it it was intriguing and I always felt like Sun Country had a lot more um, potential than what we were living up to at the time. And to give you a sense, 15, 16, and 17 were three of the best years in, in U.S. aviation history for airlines. And some country essentially broke even during those periods while the rest of the industry was earning record profits. And so um, my agreement with Mitch and Marty was basically that I would buy what I could and then we would take the rest of the company uh, to the market and try to sell their shares. Um, and it was either going to go that we were going to you know, be acquired in private equity or by some other private holder or by another airline. Uh, So that process took about three to four months. Um, And so then in the fall, you know, winter of 2017, three months after I got here, we engaged with Apollo, uh, who had agreed to come on, make an investment, underwrite a growth strategy that I had come up with and uh, take out the Davis brothers. Um, And so we consummated that agreement in early 2018. Um, And it's been quite a ride. The industry is always exciting um, and the goods and up times. So we, um, you know, changing a business really dramatically is is always a challenge. Um, And certainly one that is um, as old as our company making substantial changes to was was a real challenge. But the employees did a great job. Uh, The business strategy was essentially to take Um, a business that had a good operating DNA, um, keep that part of it, but transition away from a customer focus, which was competing with Delta for business customers into a a leisure airline uh, that served the four and a half million people of the Twin Cities and surrounding area, uh, primarily taking them on to leisure destinations. And those traffic patterns have been around for generations. taking Minnesotans down to West Florida, South Florida, South Texas, Southern California and Arizona destinations for the winter. Um, And so in order to compete in that space, we had to reduce costs pretty dramatically. 
So there was about a two-year evolution of cutting our unit costs in the industry. That's an airline available seat mile uh, by about 25%. Um, and we did that with some investments in the airplane, some investments in IT, um, and, um, and, and getting everything a lot more efficient, particularly at the airports. And so we went through that process um, at the 12 months that ended uh, February 2019, right before COVID. Uh, we had made about three times the profits that we had made in any other year of our 35-year history. So the transition was well on its way. We had plans, um, Paulo had plans to take us to the public markets. Things were going really well. Um, and then COVID happened. And so what I want to kind of talk about is is uh, our reaction through COVID and um how we're dealing with it, with the event and maybe some some things each of us can learn from uh, from the mistakes and successes we've had. So COVID for the airline industry, it's no secret, has been really dramatically bad. Uh, we um, began to see the effects of COVID on our bookings around early March. March for Sun Country is the best by far of any month that we operate by about twofold. Um, and so uh, bookings fell from record levels in the first week of March um, to basically flat year over year in the second week of March to a month later to zero. And we sold net bookings of zero dollars roughly uh, for the entire month of April. Um, you know, those are pretty dark days and, and we, you know, my staff and I were certainly uh, planning for the worst at that point. And um, you know, off of those lows, we saw a steady um, improvement in bookings as we took the airline um, through the next several months. We got some support from the federal government, which was critical, um, and you know, in the form of payroll protection. So they covered the cost of my employees, um, and so we kind of grew back through uh, June. Um, and then we saw the southern states deal with some of their COVID issues, you know, kind of it seemed to go from the coasts to the south and now to the Midwest. Um, and so we're, we're, we kind of saw bookings regress into July. At the same time, we were starting a big Amazon program. Um, and the way to think about our business is in thirds of scheduled service, which is the passenger business that we're all probably familiar with. Uh, our charter business, which is focused on the military, sports teams, um, and casino uh, junkets. And then the third would be now our cargo business. So in the month of April, we didn't fly any cargo flights. Um, today, cargo flights are about a third of the flying that we do. And so that's been great. We fly for Amazon. Uh, Amazon's business is on the right side of this economy. We're on the wrong side. Um, and so it's it really helped to bridge the gap so, you know, I don't have an epidemiologist on staff. We're not doctors here. I think, you know, one of the big things um, about taking the business through this process is to get our staff and then, and then um, by doing that and able to get our guests to feel as safe as they can feel by traveling uh, during a pandemic. So very early on, um, we required masks on our airplanes. Uh, we did that in April. Um, and I, I'm convinced that that's really the best thing that we can do, not just on the airplanes, but everywhere else, um, 
we've had very low. I've had three flight attendants that I know of uh, that have contracted COVID since um, the pandemic began, all of whom um, claim that they got it outside of work. Uh, you know, our gate staff, we don't have any cases. We've had a few cases of ramp. Now they don't have any interaction with um, customers. But we've, um, we've from an employee group, managed the pandemic really well. As part of the PSB, the government required that we continue to operate. So even in some cases in late April, early May, we were flying airplanes essentially empty. Uh, but we had to keep doing that in order to receive the federal funds. Um, so, you know, we continue to revise the process today. Uh, we do um, ionized disinfectant spray on the airplanes. We have um, increased all our cleaning processes. We put plexiglass screens in uh, to all the customer facing facilities that we deal with at the airports. Um, we change our service levels. Today, you don't get food and beverage service on the airplanes. Hopefully we can bring that back really soon. Um, and people have continued to come back onto the airplanes. Um, I think it's a really safe environment. I travel a lot still today. Uh, my family and I are traveling next weekend um, for the third time since the pandemic began. And um, a lot of it has to do with just the filtration system on the airplane that existed before COVID, but then also everything that each of the employees are doing in order to deal with this. I'm very confident on the safety of the uh, of uh, the environment inside the cabin. And it's just really about us as an industry, but also just some country communicating that more and more to our passengers. Um, a lot of my employees covered by PSP, but also underutilized, uh, we looked at as an opportunity to get involved in the community. Sun Country has a, a really unique relationship as airlines go with its community. Um, you know, we're more dependent on the Twin Cities than any other airline is on a single market. Um, you know, so we build our airline to serve the needs of the customer. Um, when you fly on Sun Country, you're flying with your friends and neighbors uh, as both other guests and staff on the airplanes. And so we excuse me, we really looked at this opportunity as, as a way to use our time and get involved with the community and help some of our uh, community members that were particularly isolated during this crisis. So we really stepped up um, our outreach um, with involvement in, in all kinds of charities in the local community. And I think it really brought the employees together because we're asking a lot of them right now, not just to be out there in the operation as frontline employees in this uh, uh, delivering an essential service, um, but also with the uncertainty in their lives that comes from working for an airline during a pandemic uh, with their, the future of their jobs. Um, and, um, and, you know, even though their salaries were covered under payroll protection, uh, many of our employees are hourly employees and those hours were cut back based on the demand. Um, and so they were, they were facing financial hardship. Um, and so, you know, we felt like it was a great opportunity to bring them together and, and, and uh, get a lot out of this, and particularly some of the challenges we've had at the Twin Cities uh, with the murder of George Floyd over the summer and the, and the riots we've had, and just it's just been a really tough summer for everybody. Um, so this has been good for us. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about <laughs> um, transitioning quickly. You know, as a large industrial, as an industrial, um, scale is probably 99% of the time a good thing. We're the smallest mainline passenger airline in the US. And as such, we could really 
transition really rapidly into a new line of business. Uh, for us, this has been our cargo business. Um, it's a bit fortuitous that we signed a contract in December, which now became um, you know, a third of our flying. But it, it's also a testament to the staff that I have. Um, it's quite a lot different to run a passenger airline than it is to run an express carrier, express package carrier. So like I said, in April, we didn't have any um, any cargo flying. We brought on 10, soon to be 12 airplanes uh, that now deliver about a third of our capacity. Um, you know, the other 30 airplanes in our fleet that are passenger airplanes are way underutilized. So it's not a recovery from the standpoint of profits, um, but it gives our crews something to do um, and is really paying the bills today. When we went on, when we went into the Amazon business, it was really about um, being a better leisure carrier to the local market. And the, the challenge we have here uh, as a leisure carrier, particularly in the in the Twin Cities, but you know, leisure carriers everywhere, is that all vacationers want to go generally at the same time. And the last two weeks of March, as you'd imagine, being here in the Twin Cities, super busy. Um, but in the month of September, demand is really, really low. So we had a great business 100 days a year. Weekends, um, holidays, March during spring break, MEA weekend. Um, and the rest of the time, it, it was really challenging to be a carrier here. Um, and so in order to service that customer better, we brought on Amazon with the idea to flatline our capacity uh, so that we could peak up better. So we wanted to grow. Um, we could either grow outside of Minneapolis or we could find ways to grow where we could grow during when flying was good without penalizing the bad period. So how do we bring on overhead um, in order to peak up further when flying was really good um, at the same time? Um, you know, not make September any worse, for example. And, and that was quite simply uh, the reason for going into the cargo business. The flying that we do for Amazon is the same today as it will be tomorrow. We fly exactly the same schedule again and again and again. Um, and while it takes the crews, the pilots away from home, uh, they do a lot of overnights in support of this. Um, it gives them the reliability to be able to have you know, a third of our flying that is not in flux. It's the same every month. Um, and that allows us then to peak up a lot more in support of the Minnesota vacationer uh, that needs us most at the back half of March and during the holidays. Um, you know, COVID challenged this business as well in practical ways. All these airplanes were being modified in a Boeing facility in China and getting airplanes out of China during a pandemic proved to be incredibly challenging. Um, but we got through it and, uh, and you know, we, we brought on our first airplane in May and now we're up to 10, soon going to 12 by the end of the month. Um, and so we're really excited about this section of our business. Um, you know, just strategically important to us, it's not going to be everything that we do. Um, but I think that it can it can both provide us a bridge into the backside of COVID and also um, do what we intended it to do originally, which is deseasonalize the business as we move forward in a post-COVID environment. So the result of all this effort is that uh, the flying that we're going to do in October is back to what it was in February before COVID came. And this is really exciting. 
um, you know, those those days in April, as I mentioned, were so dark and and uh, it was difficult not to despair during that period. You know, our flying fell on a year-over-year -year basis, 83%. Um, and we've kind of been clawing back into, into basically the same schedule. So we're going to fly as many departures in the month of October as we did in February, um, but that's on the back of a decline of about 50% of our scheduled service flying. Uh, but we've been able to find other uses for our talents in doing the Amazon business and um, and charters. Uh, so charters is, is essentially fully recovered. Um, our charter business in the fall is focused on football, so it was really exciting to see some of the some of the conferences, the Big Ten included, um, come back into their football schedule for the fall. And so that's keeping our our assets busy um, during that period of time. Uh, financially, we we were the only airline that I'm aware of um, that flies passengers as opposed to packages uh, in the second quarter of 2020 that had positive EBITDA. Um, and we'll have a quarterly profit in the third quarter. And again, I'm, and you know, the airlines have it reported as you'd imagine, but we're the only one that I'm aware of uh, that's able to make that claim. And what I tell the employees is, look, you know, we're doing better than the rest of the industry, but we're not out of the woods yet. Um, you know, we have substantial debt to service. Um, and we're not to the point where we can reinvest in our business and continue to improve um, our technology and buy new airplanes and hire more employees. Um, and we still have a challenge of redistributing our talents across our new business. Um, you know, we have a, a significant number of employees uh, that are back office and support uh, scheduled service flying, which was expected to be two or two and a half times what it is now. Uh, that need to be reallocated. So we're not out of the woods, but we feel pretty good about where we're going. Um, you know, I think the uh, one of the big lessons is just getting the employees to have hope in the process. And a lot of the guys that are really senior here in Sun Country have been through challenges in the past. Uh, they had to take pay cuts or have involuntary furloughs inflicted on them. Um, and there was just a lot of anxiety and concern as we approached this period. And um, you know, working together and getting through it and uh, bringing on a whole new line of business in order to replace um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the flying we had. I have about 1,650 employees today. You know, we're doing everything we can to save all those jobs and continue to be there for the Minnesota vacationer uh, when they're ready to get back into the air. So that's kind of the story, Sri. Um, I don't know if we can open up to questions if you like. Sorry about that. Takes a minute to find the yeah. arrow. It's <laughs> We're all used to that now with all these Zoom calls. I'm sure. That's right, uh, Jude. That was a really, uh, you know, uh, thank you for taking us through all the, you know, the pain that you've been through and some of the lucky diversification that you've did early on, which I think has been probably helped you, you know, stay stable and you know and, and uh, be where you are today. As you know, I mean, Sun Country is particularly close to all of uh, our hearts because you are the only home country, home home court airline left with us. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I think any everyone in Minnesota, you know, just has a, 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 a you know fondness for Sun Country. 
And, uh, you know, but I'm sort of curious. I also, as you know, as I chair the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, some of what you've been saying is extremely important to understand what the state of the economy is, uh, uh, is right now, as well as what it might look like as we go forward, uh, you know, uh, post pandemic. What do you think the long term recovery uh, of the airline industry might look like? So my baseline is based on the consensus view um, on vaccine availability based on a Goldman Sachs report, uh, which compiled um, uh, pharmaceutical analysts views on um, availability of the vaccine and the timeliness of it. That would be to say there's nine vaccines um, in late stage testing today. Um, you know, five of them are in the West. So I'm putting rushes in there. I don't think we're serious about that one here in the US. Um, but, you know, the odds are about 50-50 that we're going to see one of those five Western vaccines get approved by the end of the year. Um, and we're expecting 20 to 30 million vaccine doses available uh, by the second quarter of 2021. That combined with uh, increased availability of testing, there's been a lot of development and rapid testing that we're really excited about. Uh, uh, in the airline space in particular, where we could be potentially testing passengers before boarding. Um, and then also development in therapeutics. Uh, my view is that we're going to be down from where we are today, which is down about 50% uh, to down about 25% by summer vacation season uh, between Memorial Day and Labor Day of summer of 21, um, and then full recovery by November of next year. So a year from now, we expect to get back to 2019 levels of passenger demand. Now, there's going to be a bit of a shakeup, and who um, who is able to experience that is going to be different. And I think in particular in Minnesota, which is a bit of a challenge for everybody that's not um, some country in Delta, I think we're going to see uh, market share retrenchment here in Minnesota. And we've already seen that in, uh, in outside outsized pullbacks from other carriers than, than, uh, than the two that I mentioned. Uh, but that's our baseline for planning. And then um, obviously as things uh, progress will adapt. What I do expect, though, is that like we saw in June, where we saw this rush back onto the airplanes, followed by a rapid pullback based on COVID outbreaks in the South, I think this is going to be a really lumpy recovery. Um, and that kind of plays to our superpower as an airline, which is being able to react and being really nimble um, so that we can adjust very close in to, uh, to what happens, because the truth is none of us know. That's, uh, you know, I, frankly, that's very, very interesting, Jude, especially your, uh, uh, your thoughts that Sun Country, you know, being small, that agility that it gives you to be able to sort of move quickly between cargo and passengers and charters. I think that's a huge plus. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's really good to hear. But, you know, at Sun Country itself, you know, as we go forward into the pandemic, are there lessons that you've learned or are there things that you would do differently or is cargo going to be more central? Are you thinking of more geographic diversification? What, are, what does the recovery for Sun Country look like? Yeah, I mean, I've always had a philosophy when I was running Allegiant as well that, that variable costs, even if higher, are better than fixed ones. <laughs> and this has certainly proved that point. So if you think about 
um, new aircraft for an airline, typically they're justified based on the efficiency of the new airplane being able to uh, be utilized very frequently to drive down what is a higher capital cost into a lower unit cost. I think that uh, way of thinking has been challenged by COVID because um, you know, what we really care about is the cost of a parked airplane. There's not enough demand uh, to support the assets we have. And so I think we're going to continue to push into more and more variable costs through the ownership of our aircraft um, and um, try to take advantage of this. I just got out of a meeting um, where we were looking at the value of a 737-800. That's the kind of, of aircraft we fly. Um, you know, we expect it to be 40, 45% lower than what it was at the same time last year. And so that, you know, by doing that, I think we can drive down variable costs. I think, you know, most importantly, though, is just having an employee group um, that is able and willing to put up with dramatic change. And, you know, we have pilots that um, had never flown cargo, flown 737s for over 30 years, um, and now they're flying cargo. And... You know that's that's very difficult generally for a uh, for a, an organization to to manage through, particularly one. You know we're, we're a pretty old company with um, a lot of employees um, that have been through the whole history of Sun Country and and inflicting that kind of change. Uh, and most importantly, how they react to it, which is that they they get on with it. And I, I mean, I've been quite frankly amazed. We launched a, a, a cargo business with 99% on time and, um, you know, flying a whole new business line and, and uh, it's been dramatic. And then, you know, and then on the flight attendant side, the flight attendants are really challenged in this environment because we don't have nearly the demand we thought we were going to have to. And I want to do everything I can to avoid involuntaries. And, you know, they, they take, um, they work together and, and spread the flying around that we do have um, by taking voluntary furloughs and taking some time off and spending it with their families. And, you know, just, I feel and hope that it brought the company as a family much closer together. That's, that's amazing. And thanks for sharing that. And, but, you know, I mean, there's another side to it too. I mean, you do mention that, yes, the vaccines might get available by January. We might have sort of widespread distribution and hope you're hoping that by November that we'll be back on track next year in terms mm -hmm. of capacity and so on. But, you know, one of the great unknowns that we struggle with as well is how does it, um, you know, what about the consumer? Is the cons you know, how do you convince travelers that it's safe to fly? I mean, yes, you've had, you know, uh, better ventilation systems forever. I mean, aircraft, uh, you know, have usually been safer places than other pla than other uh, kind of environments in terms of the circulation of air and things like that. But how is it? Uh, how is it impacting your messaging to potential travelers? I mean, is it how is how is Sun Country convincing travelers that it's safe to fly? Well, I mean, we do um, all the processes that I mentioned about cleanliness of airplanes and masks for other customers. The number one complaint that I get from travelers today is about other customers not wearing their mask. And so we're doing as, as best we can to police the cabin and, and make it um, safe for other people and then communicate that out um, through uh, email to our customers. Um, there's, a, there's a process before you board where you um, declare 
any COVID risk that you've had, and, and we offer to reaccom you if you don't feel um, uh, if you feel like you're a risk. And you know, but I think that's kind of all we can do. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be that the uh, public has to be comfortable going out in public. And the, the cabin of an airplane is no different in my mind than it would be uh, going out to a restaurant, um, getting comfortable going to a public event in, in, in any other setting. And so I, I think it has to be in the prevalence of the disease um, becoming under control and people getting more and more comfortable. You know, I, I live out in Minnetonka. My kids are high school kids. They're not back in school. They're, they're working from home. Um, and we kind of went through this process that they all work in their uh, in uh, essential service jobs. My wife works in assisted living. And as we kind of went through this process, we were locked tight and I was able to maintain that for about a month. <laughs> and then and then there's sort of, you know, they're teenagers and, and they see their friends and, you know, life kind of comes back to normal. We're, we're as careful as we can. Um, in our private lives, but also here at work in the office, you know, I'm coming to work and we were on a hangar here and on the MSP airport and all my employees wear their masks and we're doing what we can. But um, ultimately, you know, life comes back to the way it was and people will congregate. Um, people want to go see their, their families that live away. People want to go, um, to the beach. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, um, I, I think even if we're where we are now, some country is going to be okay for a really long time. And so, you know, my, my view is to be, uh, we, we need to do everything we know that science tells us we should do to keep people safe on the airplane. Um, and I, it, to the best that I know, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, we need to communicate that to our guests and make sure that they're aware of all the measures we've put in place to protect them. Um, and then survive financially so that I can protect 1,650 jobs um, to be there on the backside of this. Thanks, Jude. This is uh, you know really interesting. I think I know we have a lot of questions from the audience. So um, you know, what questions or comments do all of you have for Jude? I think uh, uh, Amy will be taking them and reading them out. And uh, uh, please use the raise your hand button on the bottom of your screen and we'll unmute your line if you have questions live after we get through a couple of questions that have already been submitted. Right. Thanks, Ray. All right, thank you so much, Jude. We have um, lots of questions here for you. So we're gonna try to get through as many as possible. Um, the first one is given the challenges in 2020 and the previous shortage of pilots prior to the pandemic, how do you see the recruitment process changing? Are you forecasting the return of seasoned pilots or a whole new recruiting class coming on board? Well, right now we're not hiring, um, but I would say if, if we'd have had this call seven months ago in February, our biggest constraint for growth was pilot hiring. Uh, that's no longer a constraint. Our pilot hiring standards aren't any different than they were then. Um, we just have a lot of applicants. And so, you know, I think um, we're going to be able to, to, to fill any class that we're able to get, uh, we're able to justify having. Um, and with flying having recovered, actually this morning, I was in a meeting talking about potentially taking on some crews uh, to support uh, the growth that we've seen in the passenger and charter business. But it, look, it's not, 
there's no change. It's just there, there's there's a lot more pilots available. One of the interesting things that happens in these kind of in our industry is that there's a lot of furloughed pilots from other airlines that are out there looking for interim work. Um, you know, to the extent we can, we want pilots that are going to be at Sun Country for a long time. And so, um, you know, furloughed pilots, I think, are going to be really challenged. It's just why it's really valuable to have payroll protection so that the pilots can keep stay where they are. Thank you. Um, the second question, can you please speak to the percentage or volume of revenue Sun Country has been able to retain by booking future flights for travelers versus giving refunds? Will the airline continue to be respectful to passengers' travel concerns and be flexible with change requests or potential cancellations? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, today we're, we're selling about 50% of the volume that we did at the same time last year. And about a fifth of our bookings today are voucher redemptions from canceled flights in the past. Uh, we have a policy um, with 60 days out that there's no change cancel fee. Um, and so, you know, that, that continues on today and, and passengers that book in the future that, that change their mind about travel have that ability to cancel and our vouchers, um, our one year redemption requirement, uh, with a, um, requirement that you redeem them for travel in the future at that time. So, you know, essentially someone that had a travel plan that would have to be canceled in March, um, um, and they chose not to travel, not us canceling the flight. They chose not to travel. They have a voucher for that travel. Um, if they booked it this time last year, they can now book all the way through August of 2021. At some point, though, the industry has to move on from vouchers. Voucher is saying, hey, you decided not to cancel your flight. Um, and I was certainly sensitive to the idea that, hey, like no one knew COVID was happening. We had a period of time where we didn't have any uh, change cancel fees and everybody that had a ticket that didn't know COVID was happening had an opportunity to trade out of that ticket without paying change cancel fees. Uh, now everybody booking knows that COVID's a risk. Um, we offer a product where you don't have to pay any change cancel fees, but our baseline fare today has change cancel fees associated with it still today. Thank you. We have a lot of questions coming in about uh, your move to cargo. Um, everything from, you know, how has a profit margin shifted with the move to cargo? And do you see your company retaining or even growing cargo business beyond, you know, with Amazon post pandemic? Well, margins are down, period. Um, you know, I think the, the, the value so it's, it's a little bit when you have this segmentized business with all these synergies where we're using the same uh, SOC, you know, our staff that dispatches airplanes for passengers and cargo is the same. And so we have built an organization to dispatch passenger airplanes. Now they're over here dispatching uh, cargo airplanes. So that, you know, my salary, for example. So, you know, allocating that is difficult when we had a 50% fall off in the passenger side of the business. Um, you know, we're, we're not making money right now. So <laughs> margins are way, way down. Um, strategically, it's important for us to have a brand that deals directly with a consumer. We're a vendor for Amazon. And as such, Amazon um, can bring in another airline if they choose to. Uh, so we, you know, they like us because we deliver really quality operational performance. Um, 
you know, but if that slips, I think the contract may be in jeopardy. And so to me, like strategically, it's very, very important that Sun Country has a brand dealing with a consumer um, and a consumer base that's loyal to Sun Country where we deliver something special to the market that's difficult to replicate. Um, and that's going to have to be through our leisure business. Um, I think there's an opportunity to be unique in the charter space as well, because um, more um, programs, professional collegiate are going private because of, uh, because of the pandemic. And now the costs are a lot lower to fly private. Um, and I think we can be there for those teams, but ultimately some country is going to be about serving the twin city customer on a, for leisure travel. And so from if you think about from a margin perspective, um, Amazon is a is a loss leader for us, allocating surplus capacity during off period uh, times, so that we can fly a, a much steeper peak uh, when Minnesotans want to travel. Great, thank you. We've got a couple of questions here on taxpayer bailouts, um, so I'll read one of them. Um, what are your thoughts on airlines receiving additional taxpayer bailouts versus quote, forcing them to seek more conventional public market financing? Yeah, we, we don't have access to public market financing. Um, I think you could say something different about Delta Airlines. Um, but I mean, what a what an event like this would do to an industry without public support is it would consolidate the industry into a few airlines, and you know we need to decide if, if as a taxpayer if that's what we want. I'm in a position where if if the government doesn't give any more support, some country's probably going to be okay, um, but I don't think all airlines are in that circumstance. Um, you know, and and I think it it certainly benefited my employees. Um, I hope that it benefits the communities we serve, um, but I think it's you know it's a it's a rational um, comment from a taxpayer, myself included, to say, hey, why don't we let the industry um, go through the process of adjusting to a new norm? And um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not in a position to be an expert on that being a good investment for the for the taxpayer, what I can say is um, the way that the event was structured where, you know, um, there's requirements that are relatively low hurdles for in the payroll support program, you had to fly certain markets and, and um, uh, agree to no dividends and share buybacks and things like that, that, you know, we had to take the money. I mean, I can't be in a situation where my competitors all receive public support and I don't take it. It's just, I had to take the money. And so we're still in a situation, even though now I don't need payroll support um, to keep the business going. If they extend it, we'll take it again. We have to, uh, we can't be at a competitive disadvantage. Thank you. You have a fan here. It says your presentation is perfect for a current MBA course lecture. I'm so impressed with your business innovation and other great leadership qualities you are showing during this time. The question is, where do you think your strong innovation skills came from? Oh man, you know, I think innovation and being lucky is kind of a gray area there. Um, I, I think, you know, the Marine Corps is is a, an amazing organization for making every member of the Marine Corps a fanatic about being a Marine. And uh, that is a quality we need in business. 
and you know really truly motivating people to do to be who they are and choose the path that they're pat that they've chosen for themselves i think is a talent that uh the marine corps gave me and then this a legion came in and and we had um we were a startup and um we had about three million dollars which for an airline is nothing and we 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 were essentially bankrupt <laughs> and we were trying to figure out how to make a business out of it. And so we just started trying things. And I think that philosophy was pretty, uh, was, it was absolutely critical for me uh, to learn. And, and I just worked for a bunch of guys that, you know, everything is possible. And, and, you know, it's very rare that we would have a meeting where someone would throw out an idea and we'd say, eh, let's look into that or try it even. Um, and I think that philosophy kind of bringing in here, because, you know, quite frankly, when I came to um, Sun Country, I, I really wanted to make it a lot more like Allegiant, but so focus on big cities. So the idea would be to have a lot of focus cities and make miniature Minneapolis's all over the country. Now, that may still be an opportunity, but it didn't work out right away in, in our experimentation in Portland, for example, um, didn't meet my expectations. And so you know, we had to kind of change. I, I was kind of down on the, um, on the, on the charter business when I got here. Um, but we're really, really good at it. And we have really loyal customers in that space. And so instead it became a focus. And I think it's just being open-minded that you have preconceptions. We all carry them with us into new roles. And, you know, there's a pretty good chance when you're in my position taking over an airline that isn't that successful, that there's a lot of good people that are making absolutely rational decisions about their circumstances. Um, but, you know, they, they uh, you know, they, there's some assumption that was invalid or that um, they were a, uh, a victim of, of uh, unfavorable circumstance or whatever. And, you know, that there's, there's talents everywhere that we can build on. I can learn something from everybody I have an interaction with. And I think that's a, you know, that comes from being a small company that's an underdog and, and is having to fight for survival. And I think a lot of the people here have that philosophy because of the challenges they've had in the past. Thank you so much. Um, one of our listeners is asking, why are different airports back at different recovery rates? And do you see vacation travel or business travel recovering first? Um, well, so let me answer the second part of that first, which is that business travel is absolutely lagging. I mean, dramatically lagging leisure travel. And I think that explains then also um, uh, the outperformance in the airline space of airlines that focus on leisure customer. We're, we're dramatically outperforming the rest of the industry. And then also the outperformance on certain airlines in recovery uh, because of their leisure focus. So Orlando and Vegas, famously leisure destination airports um, are recovering much more rapidly uh, than San Francisco, New York City, and Chicago. And that's just a nature of the traffic mix that, they, uh, that they've always had. So, you know, we experienced this in 9-11. We experienced this uh, during the uh, Great Recession where leisure customers just returned really rapidly. And Sri, this kind of goes to your original point about the consumer. Um, I think many, you know, this is clearly discretionary spin, but it's um, it's critical spin nonetheless to, to many customers. And what we've seen, um, you know, so um, in, in sort of credit card receipts, for example, um, is, you know, a lot of the dollars that were spent 
um, on travel have been reallocated to other sectors of the economy like home improvement, uh, dramatically outperforming year over year. Um, and we're starting to see that regress back to the way it was. Um, I think it's going to be a long, slow road. And certainly, um, you know, families in the Twin Cities are probably going on dry vacations much more uh, commonly than they were flyaway vacations. Um, but, you know, the, the consumer pool total has been relatively strong, um, in my view. Now, we've seen consumers pull back recently and saving rates have gone up as well. Um, but I think both the 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 priority of of air travel, leisure air travel on a family's budget, and also the stability of family spend, particularly here in the Twin Cities economy, which is a hard, um, you know, a lot of healthcare, um, food and beverage dependencies. This is a very stable economy, not a one for app for rapid growth nor nor recession. I feel really good about our place. I think you're going to see MSP um, originating customers come back first for leisure focus, and, and you're seeing that on the markets. They're re recovering. Uh, so on a year-over-year -year decline, massive declines in, in Minneapolis to um, New York, Chicago, Seattle, uh, D.C. area, um, but relatively you know, we're down like maybe 20, 30% to markets like Orlando, west coast of Florida, Southern California, Phoenix, uh, those markets have held up a lot more. And that's that just gives you a sense that uh, the leisure customer is the first one to come back into the air. That's fascinating. Great. Sheree, we have a lot of additional questions. I'm happy to. If you have any, feel free to jump in here. I think a lot of people are wondering, um, you know, do you predict any permanent changes in the flying experiences due to things we've learned uh, during COVID, maybe at the airlines, contactless um, operations, et cetera, airport facilities? Um, that's really hard. I mean, I don't think that the, the measures that we've put into place are going to go away anytime soon. So that's plexiglass screens, mass in the airport. I think that this, you know, because of the uncertainty of this virus, you know, that is to say, as a, um, as someone who suffers from, not me, but anybody that suffers from COVID, the outcome of that is relatively uncertain and variable. Um, we're just going to be really careful in relaxing some of the measures put in place in response to the virus. Um, I would expect if you travel this time next year, you're probably gonna see uh, masks on people traveling again. And I think people are gonna just generally be more careful. Um, and, you know, I'm, I mean, the, really what is at the core of the problem is the density on the airplane, is that gonna change? Um, so we have 186 seats on our airplanes. And my view is no. Uh, the economics are so compelling. Um, and the infection rates and the risk of that so low that I think the, the economics of that give and take are going to be no. You're going to see full airplanes with dense configurations because ultimately people want to save on their air travel. And that, that really does come down to an economics issue. Um, if we're going to spend the same on a departure, um, we could put X number of seats on the airplane. Um, you know, the, the people's perception of the safety of less density relative to their sensitivity and buying a ticket is going to is going to go right back to where we we were, uh, which is you know 160, 170 people on every flight. 
Now, I do think, though, that, you know, the, the cleanliness, the um, masks, um, a lot of the measures that were taken into account in this in this process uh, will will remain and there's probably going to be some new ones. Um, you know, in our industry, the big discussion is about rapid testing upon boarding or at some point in the travel process. And, um, you know, we're not there yet. We don't have the ability at Sun Country to enact anything like that. We need the airports. We need probably the federal government to help us. Um, but I don't think it's out of the question that you're going to see within six months rapid testing prior to departure for all passengers. And that'll probably go for at least until we get this thing under under control, let's say, you know, infection rate of one per 100,000. Well, Amy, I think I would like to jump in with one question here. And this is, a, you know, we've been talking a lot about the industry and about Sun Country and what might happen, but this is a more uh, personal kind of question. You know, we are, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that we've been named the number one military-friendly business school in the country. And I'm so thrilled that we've had somebody with, who's had this experience as a Marine who's made a successful transition into the world of business. I know a lot of our students are listening in and right now, you know, significant percentages of our full-time MBA, our executive MBA, even our supply chain program is military vets. What, what advice would you have for them in making this transition from the world of military to the world of business? Um, I think the best advice I could give would be just, you know, be willing to, to change your mind and, and quit, <laughs> do something else. I mean, my, my process, I was, I was as fanatic a Marine as any of them, and, you know, to be a general someday or something like that. And, and I was, um, I, I was very vested. And then we had, you know, my son came and um, um, I was up for a, a deployment. And back in those days, we were deploying for, we were on a seven month out, seven month back rotation. Um, and when you're out, you're out, you're gone. You don't talk, you, you're just gone. And I didn't want to do that again. And so my first job, I went back and got an MBA. And then my first job was as a trader, uh, natural gas trader. And I hated it. It was awful. I, you know, it was awful. And then my next job after that was American Airlines, which was a gigantic company. And that, that was awful. I hated that too. And then, uh, and then I just kept trying new things and got, a, got on with a startup. And that was, you know, th that philosophy fit me well. My path is probably much different from everyone else's. And I think that you come out of the Marine Corps or any service where you have a very structured environment, you're used to things, um, having, you know, having a lot of resources, at your disposal, you're used to, um, you know, relatively stable, you know, earning and deployment cycle and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and business is much different. And, you know, I think you just got to be open-minded and keep looking and find your place. Thank you. Thank you for those words, uh, Jude. I, I heard somewhere there that, you know, you did the MBA in that, in the middle of yeah. the transition. So I, I'm so delighted to hear that because I know a lot of our students are doing exactly that and we're trying to help them translate some of their experiences even that they've had in the military into the language of business because sometimes even just that, you know, how does your previous experience sort of apply in, in this uh, world that they may not know that much about is, has been uh, great. So I would love to connect you with our students and more uh, since you are right here in town. I'd love that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So Amy, are there any other questions that which are absolute, uh, you know, which you'd like to ask or there? 
I think we have one more uh, and then we will uh, let uh, Jude go. Um, the final one is, can you please talk a little bit about Sun Country's environmental, social, and governmental standards? Do you believe that Sun Country's ESG stance has helped the company, company recover from COVID? Yeah, I mean, I spoke a little bit about my prepared comments about, um, uh, about community service and feeling part of a community that has both our customers and employees incorporated into it. Um, you know, we should touch on the environmental issue. I think it's it's a it's going to going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Um, you know, we're we have a big carbon footprint. We consume about in 2017 we consumed about 75 million gallons of jet fuel. Um, you know, I think that the the response to that needs to be that when we burn gas, we're making sure we get good. Um, social value out of that, which is taking, you know, taking people as direct um, as we can to their destination and with as full of airplanes as we can to reduce the uh, carbon footprint of every individual traveler. Um, that's a somewhat um, contentious view because, um, you know, we also lower the airfare. So we're making travel more accessible to more and more people. And so there's, there's a bit of a a circle there where you say, um, you know, I'm going to reduce the cost of travel and therefore more people are going to travel and therefore I'm going to buy more airplanes and consume more fuel. Um, you know, the industry around the world has dealt with um, environmental consciousness a little bit differently. I think the best way um, is fuel tax, <laughs> which is to say, um, you know, when airlines consume fuel if if it's society's view that um there's a um cost to society for that then then it should be taxed and that's the most efficient way there's also you know europe is experimenting with carbon trading schemes um you know but ultimately you know i also believe that there's society value for people being mobile and um you know, it breaks down walls that people go on vacation, experiment on, uh, experience other cultures. So it's a very interesting discussion and one that I think needs to be, you know, sort of put forth rationally. Um, how much do we as a society value a mobile uh, population relative to having a carbon footprint? The energy dis density of, um, the energy density of, of a, uh, of a gallon of fuel isn't something we can replace with electric power anytime soon. It's just, you know, electric aircraft don't work for anything that's, that's of substantial length. Um, and there's nothing on the horizon that's gonna change that. Um, but what we can do as an industry is, is just have a discussion about it, uh, make sure that when we consume fuel that we're, we're doing it with full airplanes um, and as little connections as possible. Those are really inefficient ways to get a customer from A to B. Um, and I think that's that's the right way to do it. Um, you know, one other thing that we talk a lot about here at Sun Country is diversity. Uh, it's not totally in the wheelhouse of ESG, but you know, I, I think that this is something that in this country now, particularly where we live here in the Twin Cities, um, it's just a huge challenge. And, and uh, we have a pretty white state uh, we have aspirations to grow outside of Minneapolis. It's our benefit. We're more diverse than the state of Minnesota, but it's in, in, our, it's in our best interest um, um, 
for, for all, all kinds of reasons to try to encourage diversity across our work group. My first uh, week on the job, I was in this big meeting and it was all white people. <laughs> and I sent a text to HR. I was like, hey, what, you know, it's weird. Um, you know, I came from Nevada, which is pretty diverse. And, and, I, and it's basically, you know, we're more diverse than the state, um, but where we're particularly challenged, and I think this is a product of uh, old industry, is um, we, particularly in high paying jobs like pilots and senior management, skew to white male. And it's, it, you know, we need to work really hard to try to change that. Um, I rebuilt the management team when I got here. I gave four offers on the senior leadership team to women. They all turned us down. You know, at some point you got to ask the question, is it you? <laughs> and so we continue to work on that. We got our first female board member a couple of weeks ago. We're really excited about that. Um, and we're just trying to, to do a better job. And, and every speech that I give to my employees, we talk about diversity. Um, and from all levels of the company, it's really just about making people feel comfortable, regardless of uh, the color of your skin, sexual orientation, sex, whatever. You know, we want everybody to feel like they're part of the family. Um, and we, we're always striving to get better. And it, I think it just starts with having a conversation. Great thoughts, Jude. I mean, thank you for sharing all of that with us. And thank you for spending this time talking to our first Tuesday audience. I'm sure everyone has uh, learned from you. And we wish you luck at the hometown airline. We need you to succeed. So, you know, you have us, all of us rooting for Sun Country at this point. Thanks, Rhea. Uh, I appreciate your time. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Jude Bricker from Sun Country Airlines. You can find more information about this podcast, including previous episodes, on our website, z.umn.edu slash boardroom. I'm Jamie Plusser from the Carlson School of Management. Thank you for listening.